The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all? To feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation. Because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Over 25 years ago, on September 29th, 1998, we watched a brainy girl with curly hair drop everything to follow a guy she only kind of knew all the way to college. And so began Felicity. My name is Juliette Littman, and I'm a Felicity superfan. Join me, Amanda Foreman, who you may know better as Megan, the roommate, and Greg Grunberg, who you may also know as Sean Blunberg, as the three of us revisit our favorite moments from the show and talk to the people who helped shape it. Listen to Dear Felicity, presented by Walmart on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Cold War really did begin after the Marshall Plan because it wasn't until that point that both sides, the United States and the Soviet Union, had decided to abandon the Yalta-Potsdam framework for collaboration and to pursue their interests unilaterally. That was Ben Steele discussing the Marshall Plan. listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Today's guest is Ben Steele, who is Senior Fellow and Director of International Economics at the Council on Foreign Relations. He's the author of The Marshall Plan, Dawn of the Cold War, a new book that explores the famous US initiative to provide economic aid to Western Europe after the Second World War. I spoke to Ben down the line a little while back to find out more. 
so Ben, your your book on the Marshall Plan has uh, just come out in the US and UK, and I can see it's already garnered some excellent reviews. So perhaps we could start talking about the name itself. How much was the plan the work of George Marshall? Well, the architects of the plan were people below Marshall in the State Department, and in particular, two individuals, uh, the famous uh, diplomat George Kennan, uh, who coined the term containment as it applied to the uh, Soviet Union in a famous foreign affairs article in 1947. Uh, Kennan was primarily responsible for designing the Marshall Plan as a a geostrategy Uh, to keep the Soviets from penetrating the parts of Europe that they did not actually control at the end of World War II. Uh, A second very important figure who uh, sadly is largely forgotten today is a man named Will Clayton, who was Undersecretary of Economic Affairs in the State Department. And he, in many ways, can be considered one of the founding fathers of the European Union, integrating Western Europe economically, politically, and later militarily was actually a vital component of the Marshall Plan. It was seen as being necessary to revitalize the European economies as quickly as possible and to ensure that they could cohere and act as one in the face of any potential aggression either from the Soviet Union or perhaps down the road, Germany. So you talked about this idea of containment and this fear of uh, Soviet encroachment into Western Europe. How realistic a prospect was that in the years after the Second World War? It was highly unlikely that Stalin would have used military means at that point. Of course, he was anxious to um, have his troops in as much of Europe as uh, possible. Uh, At the end of the conflict, um, he um, told the French communist leader in 1947 that it was extremely unfortunate that the Soviet Union was unable to occupy Paris. But he would not have been foolish enough to try to send tanks into Western Europe. Having said that, local communist parties, particularly in Italy and France, were extremely powerful in 1947. They were both parts of coalition governments at the time. And of course, they received tremendous moral and other support from the Soviet Union. So these were considered uh, by the United States effectively to be Soviet fifth columns within Western Europe. And so the Marshall Plan involved economic assistance to quite a large number of countries in Europe. What kind of money are we talking about in total? Right. In 1948 dollars, we're talking about $13.2 billion spread over four years. It was very important to Kennan to do this over a four-year period to demonstrate to Western Europe that the United States was here to stay. It wasn't going to abandon Western Europe. It wasn't going to go home and retreat into isolationism as it had after World War I. Uh, but but to put that number 13.2 billion in context, that was about 1.1% of US GDP, 2.6% of recipient country GDP. And as a percentage of US output today, we're talking about $800 billion. 
that's clearly a large amount of money. And I can imagine nowadays if someone came forward in America and said, we want to give $800 billion to Europe, there might be quite a lot of opposition to that. How, how were they able to get this through against political opponents and also for the public at large? Um, it was uh, an extreme domestic challenge. In, in fact, the effort to push the Marshall Plan through a Republican Congress that was very anxious to cut taxes and have a peace dividend was widely referred to as the Marshall Plan to pass the Marshall Plan. And there's one individual in particular who deserves enormous credit. Uh, Marshall himself says the plan should have in some capacity be named after him, is Republican Senator Arthur Vandenberg. He was head of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, uh, a one-time isolationist in the 1930s, who changed his views quite dramatically after Pearl Harbor decided the United States could no longer consider itself protected by its two oceans, the world had become too small. And without Arthur Vandenberg's efforts, um, it is highly unlikely that the Marshall Plan could have gotten enough Republican support to actually have passed into legislation, which it did in April 1948. And then on the European side, what kind of reaction was there from the various European countries to this promise of economic assistance? Well, the person who picked up the ball and ran with it the, uh, the quickest and the uh, most enthusiastically was, of course, the British Foreign Minister, Ernest Bevan. Um, and that was partly due to the efforts of Marshall's deputy, Dean Acheson. When Marshall made his famous speech adumbrating what would become the Marshall Plan at Harvard in June of 1947, he deliberately delivered the message in a very low-key way. He wanted the ideas to germinate and percolate um, a bit in the United States. He didn't want splashy headlines and he didn't get them. But Acheson was very concerned that the big message might be missed in Europe. So he called together a group of British newsmen just before Marshall's speech and said, this is going to be big stuff. Whatever time of night it is, he said, wake up, Ernie. And Bevan clearly got the message. Um, and immediately after hearing the speech, he contacted his French counterpart, Georges Bidot. He met with uh, Bidot in Paris to plan their strategy, which in, uh, in conjunction with the Americans was to lure the Soviet foreign minister, Vyacheslav Molotov, to Paris in order to negotiate the possibility of the Soviet Union participating in the Marshall Plan. But the actual aim was to encourage him to storm out so that he himself, and of course, Joseph Stalin in the Soviet Union, would take the responsibility for dividing Europe and not the United States. So the, so the idea was that the Americans would offer Marshall Plan aid to the Soviet Union, but knew they, they'd never accept it. So was America happy to accept the consequences of potential further polarisation in what then became the Cold War? I wouldn't use the term happy. Um, it was a last option. But Marshall had spent six weeks in March and April in Moscow negotiating with 
Molotov and Stalin over Germany, trying to find some means of producing a peace treaty and unifying the country. But the differences between them were just irreconcilable. Um, there was a narrow issue that divided them. That was reparations. Stalin insisted on at least $10 billion in reparations from the Western occupied part of Germany. In current dollars, that would be a little over $100 billion. The Americans were absolutely unwilling to consider that because at the time, uh, they were keeping Western Germany alive. So $10 billion in reparations uh, from Western Germany would have effectively have been financed by the United States itself. It had made that mistake after World War I and wasn't about to repeat it. But there was a much bigger split between the two, and that was that neither the United States nor the Soviet Union could afford to have a unified Germany as an ally of the other. So when Marshall came home after the stalemate, in Moscow in April of 47, uh, he made a famous radio address in which he said, the patient is sinking while the doctors deliberate. What he was trying to get across was that cooperation with the Soviet Union was effectively over if the United States did not take immediate unilateral action to revive Western Germany and Western Europe in general, uh, which was really sinking into disorder and chaos, Britain uh, in particular, the United States itself was going to be faced with a major economic and physical security threat. Clearly the Soviet Union decided they didn't want to participate in the Marshall Plan, but what about the Eastern European countries that had fallen under Soviet sway? What was, what was their response? This is one of the most fascinating parts of the story. Um, Stalin had early on actually considered trying to participate in the Marshall Plan because he, he was a Marxist ideologue and really believed that the United States had to give billions of dollars to Europe in order to prop up its own um, industry, which was, of course, suffering from some overcapacity after the war. But he believes the inevitable crisis of capitalism had, had come and that perhaps he could get unconditional aid from the United States, just as he had through Lend-Lease during the war. He also wanted to participate uh, in order to try to undermine it from within and make sure that the United States could not impose terms. And initially, he actually told the satellite states in Eastern Europe to participate in discussions in order to encourage them to storm out and make clear that the American conditions would be unacceptable, in particular, the revival of Western Germany. The problem Stalin faced was that the Czechs in particular were so enthusiastic that he did not actually trust them. He did not believe that they would actually storm out of uh, a, a, an aid conference. And he reversed himself entirely, insisting that they could not participate um, in, in any means, even in order to show their displeasure uh, with aspects of the American initiative. And I argue in the book that the Cold War really did begin after the Marshall Plan because it wasn't until that point that both sides, the United States and the Soviet Union, had decided to abandon the Yalta Potsdam framework for collaboration and to pursue their interests unilaterally. And in particular, 
Stalin cracked down on Eastern Europe violently after announcement of the Marshall Plan. Prior to the Marshall Plan, he was willing to tolerate uh, coalition governments of sorts in Poland and Czechoslovakia, Romania, Bulgaria, and Hungary. But after the Marshall Plan, he pushed out all the uh, remaining democratic forces in Eastern Europe and imposed a strict regime of fealty to Moscow. And so this is something that you believe the American framers of the Marshall Plan were not happy about, but they were willing to accept it as a price to shore up Western Europe. Is that right? Absolutely. Uh, the State Department was very clear about this. Um, you can see this in internal memoranda. Uh, FDR's vision for the post-war world had been widely described as one world. The United Nations, for example, was supposed to be a forum for cooperation between the United States and the Soviet Union to maintain peace and stability around the world. Now the Truman administration was going to consciously be pursuing a foreign policy based on the idea of two worlds, a democratic capitalist world and an authoritarian communist world. And the dividing line in Europe was going to be very clear. And the United States uh, very consciously wrote off countries in Central and Eastern Europe that really did want desperately to participate in the Marshall Plan, in particular Czechoslovakia and Poland. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter. Because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. Over 25 years ago, on September 29th, 1998, we watched a brainy girl with curly hair drop everything to follow a guy she only kind of knew all the way to college. And so began Felicity. My name is Juliette Littman, and I'm a Felicity superfan. Join me, Amanda Foreman, who you may know better as Megan, the roommate, and Greg Grunberg, who you may also know as Sean Blunberg, as the three of us revisit our favorite moments from the show and talk to the people who helped shape it. Listen to Dear Felicity, presented by Walmart on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, such a clutch pickup, Dave. I was worried we'd bring back the same team. I meant those blackout motorized shades. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Hall of Fame son? They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. Go to Blinds.com for 40% off site-wide. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. You've talked a bit about Germany already. A lot of the other Western European countries had very recently been at war with Germany. So how did they feel about Germany receiving significant economic aid from America? The French in particular were furious about this. Uh, in fact, the French were uh, just about as ruthless in their occupation of Germany as the Soviets were. They were ripping up factories and bringing them back to France as um, reparations. And they were very, very concerned about the United States 
reversing the so-called Morgenthau plan. This was a plan in 1944 uh, to deindustrialize Germany, effectively to pastoralize it, to make sure it could never threaten its neighbors again. Uh, and so France really had to be drawn kicking and screaming into the Marshall Plan because of their concerns about the U.S. focus on reviving the West German economy as quickly as possible. And I should emphasize that the Marshall Plan would never have succeeded unless the United States had given France and Britain firm security guarantees because they were very concerned about um, um, Germany, not just the Soviet Union, in the form of NATO, which was created in 1949. And the creation of NATO, I believe, should be credited first and foremost to the British Prime Minister, Ernest Bevan, who convinced the United States that these security guarantees were, were going to be fundamental in particular because the United States was demanding Western European economic integration, and that meant that these countries would no longer be self-sufficient. If they were going to have to depend on each other economically, that meant, for example, that Germany could cut off coal supplies at any point in time, or the Soviets uh, might come to control Germany and cut off coal supplies. So it was going to be vital that the United States not just provide economic aid, but provide clear-cut security guarantees. What kind of uses did the European countries put the money to, and, and how far was this stipulated by the United States? You know, the, the U.S. view on this was really quite schizophrenic. On the one hand, Marshall was quite insistent that the details of the plan should be worked out um, in Europe on its own as a grouping and submitted to the United States. But as you can imagine, the Europeans had difficulty cooperating, and they also had very different visions about um, how they wanted to proceed. So in the end, the Americans did try to impose certain conditions, very different conditions in, in different countries, but they largely failed. The one condition that they were able to impose, which was by far the most important to them, was to keep the local communist parties out of government. In Italy and France, in May of 47, just before Marshall's speech, the communists were booted out of government and they were never allowed back in. Uh, and I believe that's one of the reasons why business relationships and investment began to revive so quickly after announcement of the Marshall Plan, because people on the ground understood now um, that the Americans would do what it takes to make sure that the communists would not come back into power. But Italy and France uh, pursued very, very different strategies with their Marshall funding. French pursued their uh, Monet plan for national industrial modernization, despite the fact that the Americans were constantly cutting off aid and turning it back on, trying to get the French to focus on fiscal and monetary stabilization. And the Italians did just the opposite. The Americans were encouraging them constantly to have some sort of industrial modernization plan uh, like the French, but they pursued a strict policy of um, uh, fiscal and monetary stabilization, insisted on a sort of neoliberal agenda of uh, uh, allowing the uh, economy to revive through private enterprise. And I should emphasize that both of those approaches were largely successful. 
So um, each country pursued its own way forward with, as I said, the one proviso that the communists not be allowed back into government. And here in Britain, I believe Britain was actually the largest recipient of Marshall pl- Plan money. What, what kind of uses was this aid put to in Britain? In Britain, um, most of the money was actually used to retire debt. As you can imagine, the uh, Truman administration wasn't entirely happy with British economic policy. The new Labour government was busy um, uh, nationalizing firms. And in the British occupation zone of Germany, they were also uh, encouraging nationalization, uh, which was um, totally unacceptable to the Americans. And they put an end to that after the uh, so-called bizonal fusion in Germany. But uh, I think it's very important to emphasize that despite the fact that the Truman administration had very great differences on economic policy with the British, with the French, uh, and the Italians, the Americans were very supportive of the so-called NCL, non-communist left in these countries, because they believed that the NCL had democratic legitimacy. And it was the first priority of the Truman administration to make sure that none of these countries uh, succumbed to the temptation of communism. And so that is the reason why um, the Truman administration tolerated policies which they they thought were misguided, except in one country, as you can imagine, in in West Germany, where the United States was basically a a dictator, largely a benign dictator, but a dictator nonetheless. General Lucius Clay, uh, the military governor on, on the ground, for example, refused to allow the Social Democrats to nationalize various industries. He was determined to create a West German state first, which he hoped would come to be controlled by the center-right and Konrad Adenauer, which was against such nationalization. And of course, he was very happy when that did come to pass in September of 1949. Well, a lot of Western Europe experienced a economic recovery in the late 40s, early 1950s. How far do you think the Marshall Plan was responsible for that? Well, um, you know, the early eulogistic accounts of the Marshall Plan uh, ascribe uh, virtually the entire remarkable recovery um, to the Marshall Aid itself. It was only a few decades later when uh, economists started turning their statistical tools on the subject and expressed a bit more skepticism about it. Basically, what the economists found is that indeed something was going on here. There was an an enormous recovery and output between the time that the Marshall Plan was announced in 47 and the time it it was wrapped up in mid-1952. Industrial output increased by about 60%. To put that in perspective, EU in the five years Uh, before the financial crisis in 2008, saw output increase by 15%. So something was clearly going on. But when they looked at the expected Keynesian mechanisms by which this recovery could have been affected, for example, the ability to import more because these countries were short of dollars, they didn't find a large effect. Was it that government spending was higher than it would have been? Well, actually, no. Government spending as a percentage of GDP fell across the Marshall countries um, during those years. So I think 
Um, the effect came from two factors in particular that were more difficult to quantify. The first was that George Kennan had always emphasized that the most important effect of the Marshall Plan would be psychological. That is, convincing the Europeans that the Americans were not going home, would not retreat into isolationism, uh, would provide for their security. I think that had an enormous stimulative uh, effect on private enterprise. Uh, as I emphasized earlier, Kennan was very anxious that this be a multi-year program in order to make this clear, that this was not uh, the United States just giving a sum of money and retreating into isolationism again. The second most critical factor was the reintegration of Germany into the West European uh, economy. Before the war, Germany had been the primary capital goods supplier for Europe. Germany basically traded capital goods for food and other commodities. But after the war, the United States was the primary capital goods supplier in Europe. And um, this was running down critically the stash of dollar foreign reserves in Western Europe. So one of the ambitions of the United States was to replace itself as the primary capital goods supplier to Europe with Western Germany. Uh, so Western Germany would be put back into its old role as quickly as possible. And this was enormously successful. And together with the security guarantees that were provided to uh, Western Europe, this had an enormous stimulative effect. Taking the Marshall Plan as a whole, looking at it economically, politically, diplomatically, how far would you argue that it was actually a success? Oh, I would uh, argue that it was a, a, an enormous success. Let me read you an extremely uh, prescient statement from a Republican senator back in October 47 as the Marshall Aid was being developed, Senator Henry Cabot Lodge. He wrote to Vandenberg, who passed it on to Marshall, that, quote, unquote, the recovery of Western Europe is a 25 to 50 year proposition. And the aid which we extend now and in the next three years will in the long future result in our having strong friends abroad. Now, if you advance forward to 1989 and the collapse of the Berlin Wall, you see that the Soviet alliances crumbled immediately or once that uh, structure was taken down, whereas the institutions that the United States built with its Western European partners in the early years after the Second World War, I'm thinking in particular of NATO, uh, and the European Union were as attractive as ever. And I think this is really perhaps the finest testimony to the long-term success of the Marshall Plan. Just finally, ever since the Marshall Plan was, was inaugurated, people have talked of using this kind of idea again to try and resolve other issues around the world. That's Which, right. I mean, how far do you think the Marshall Plan is a model we should still be following? Well, you know, when I set out to write this book, I think the thing that intrigued me most about the Marshall Plan was the endless desire to repeat it. In the past five years alone, there have been calls for new Marshall Plans in Ukraine, in Greece, in Southern Europe, in North Africa, in Gaza, and most recently in Syria. 
Um, but we've never seen anything even remotely similar to the Marshall Plan um, being implemented. And I think that speaks to the unique historical circumstances uh, at the time. And it also speaks to some of the failures of economic intervention in, in more recent times. Consider American Reconstruction Aid in Iraq and Afghanistan. The United States has spent over $200 billion on reconstruction in Iraq and Afghanistan. And in current dollars, that's more than 50% more than the entirety of Marshall Aid. Yet the United States has almost nothing to show for it. And I think the primary reason is the complete absence of internal and external security in Iraq and Afghanistan. And as I had emphasized earlier, the provision of just that sort of security through NATO was actually vital to the success of the Marshall Plan. So that was Ben Steele. The Marshall Plan, Dawn of the Cold War, is due to be published today, the 15th of March, in the UK by Oxford University Press. And in the US, it's already on sale, published by Simon & Schuster. OK, so that's about all for today, but please do listen in again on Monday for more from the world of history. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. 